Welcome to Mammoth Community Christian Church. It's wonderful to worship the Lord with you today. In my sermons, we're currently in a series that I call, Why We Gather. And we're trying to answer the question, why do we even need to gather together physically as, as a church? Why do we even need to do this in person? After all, on a Sunday, we could just tune in to a famous preacher online. We could just download a worship set, uh, tune into a, a Spotify playlist. Why do we have to be here? in person, physically, gathered as God's people to worship. Now, rather than judging others, we're making, uh, rather than judging others who are making a different choice regarding whether or not to gather in person, we're looking at our own hearts in this series. And we're examining, why am I making the choice that I'm making? And we're also recognizing that the pandemic is still happening and that there are many people around us who have good reasons to stay home. They have health reasons. And we understand that we bless them and we welcome you if you are joining us online today. And so let's read our passage for today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a temple of the Spirit to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the last time I spoke, we saw that sin separates us from God and sin separates us from one another. Sin refers to the things we do that violate God's character, that, that go against who God is, and, and that, that go against the way of life that God calls us to live as his people. Sin then destroys our relationships by building walls between us and God and walls between us and each other. As a result, there are these dividing walls of hostility all over our world. You see them everywhere. They separate people of different ethnic groups, cultural groups, and social groups, and they also separate people within the same cultural and social and ethnic groups. Sin destroys relationships, and it begins by destroying our relationship with God. On the cross, though, we saw that Jesus tears down these walls of hostility that separate us. And through Jesus Christ, then, we're invited into relationship. We're invited into relationship with God and relationship with each other that we will never be able to experience apart from Jesus Christ. These living relationships, these healed relationships, relationships as we were created to experience relationships that our world and everyone around us longs for and searches for, but we have it through a relationship with God and then a Christ-enabled, Holy Spirit-empowered relationship with one another. We also looked then at the implications of this fact for our community life, and we learned that God's manifest presence 
in the most holy place of the temple in Jerusalem was separated from the people of Israel by a curtain. And we learned that only the high priest could enter the most holy place and only once a year and only when he carried blood, the the life of a creature who had been killed in his place and in the place of the Israelites and he offered this blood of the sacrificial animal in the place where his own blood and where the blood of the Israelites as guilty sinners where they deserved to be offered to God as the penalty, the punishment, the price of their sin. When Jesus died on the cross, though, this curtain that separated the most holy place from all people, this curtain was torn down from top to bottom. And we then saw in Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 2 that our community life together becomes the most holy place in which God dwells by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 2 we read this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. As believers, we each are a living stone that God uses and that God fits into exactly the right place so that we together are being formed into this living temple in which God lives by His Spirit. In other words, our community life together as believers becomes the place where God manifests His presence on this earth. Our community life together becomes the the most holy place, the living temple in which God dwells. As God dwells within this new living temple made up of our lives, we then have a communal experience of the manifest presence of God. And part of this experience of being a living temple is receiving God's call to be holy, to be holy, both corporately in our communal life with one another and as individuals in our life of following Jesus Christ. And God's work of shaping us to be a holy community made up of individual believers who exude the holiness of Jesus Christ is part of God's purpose, part of the reason why he calls us together, together, to be here in one place, in person, as a community of faith. Now, Scripture teaches that living in the presence of God, who is perfectly holy, is the one thing 
that will satisfy the hunger of our souls. We were created for this, to live our lives in the presence of the holy God. And if we don't experience this, it will always feel that in the center of who we are, something core, something essential is missing. And in fact, the most essential thing will be missing. We were created to live in the presence of the holy God. And David describes the fulfillment and the joy and, and the contentment and the peace that we experience in God's presence in Psalm 84. He says, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Now for those who know God, who've experienced God's holy presence in this way, they know that nothing else in this world can satisfy. Only God's holy presence can, can bring the contentment, the, the, can still the hunger of their souls. David then later in this psalm writes this, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Experiencing the presence of God in all God's fullness, in all God's glory, satisfies this longing that each of us have. This is what we were created to experience. This alone is what will make us whole and complete and full of joy. There's a serious problem, though. And that is that none of us, as people who've broken our relationship with God, can survive God's holy presence. By breaking our relationship with God, we've polluted ourselves. And now in our condition of sin, we can no longer survive the unveiled, manifest presence of God. For this reason, God tells Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. You can't take it, Moses. On one hand, we long for the presence of our holy God, and only in his holy presence do our souls find rest and peace and contentment and joy. And yet on the other hand, we can't survive the holy presence of God because God is like a sun, David writes. God is like a consuming fire, Moses teaches. How could we ever endure and survive the presence of God where alone we'll find the contentment for which we long? On August 12, 2018, the Parker Solar Probe was launched by NASA. Unlike other NASA missions that study the planets of our solar system or asteroids or distant galaxies, the purpose of this mission, this spacecraft, is to study the sun. 
The spacecraft sent on this mission will enter the sun's atmosphere and it will approach closer to the sun's surface than any other human object ever before in the history of the universe. NASA writes this, the Parker Solar Probe will perform its scientific investigations in a hazardous region of intense heat and solar radiation. The spacecraft will fly close enough to the sun to watch the solar wind speed up from subsonic to supersonic, and it will fly through the birthplace of the highest energy solar particles, end quote. Now, in order to protect itself from the intensity of this experience, the intensity of the heat and the radiation pouring out of the sun, this spacecraft is given this special shield. It's made of, out of a specially developed carbon composite material, uh, and it's about seven and a half feet in diameter and about four and a half inches thick. And this special shield is then able to block the, the radiation and the heat. And at this point in the sun's atmosphere, the heat is about 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. But this shield blocks the intensity and it enables the scientific instruments to survive. And without this shield, this spacecraft would be destroyed in a matter of seconds. It needs this shield. It's striking to me that in spite of our tremendous technological advances, the closest that this spacecraft will get to the surface of the sun is 3.8 million miles. That's the distance between the earth and the moon multiplied by 16 times. That's the closest our, our best instrument can get to the surface of the sun 16 times the distance between the earth and the moon. If we got closer, it would be totally destroyed. It remains this far from the sun because of how overwhelmingly powerful the sun is and, and how the sun will destroy anything that gets too close. Now, does this mean that the sun is bad? Does this mean that the sun is a negative influence? Not at all. The sun is what drives photosynthesis, which enables plants to transform solar energy into chemical energy. The sun gives us one of the basic ingredients we need for life on this planet. And yet this same positive energy that we need to survive will also destroy anything that's not equipped to survive in the presence of the sun. And I think that this morning the sun provides a helpful analogy for us of the holiness of God. When God set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt, God led them to Mount Sinai where he met with them. He met with Moses and God gave Moses the law that the Israelites were to follow in order to maintain their relationship with him. This was a dramatic moment in Israel's history in which God is revealing himself to them in a, in a way that's especially clear. 
And it's at this point that Israel was allowed to see God's glory. And the way that God's glory appeared to them is as a consuming fire. In Exodus 24, 17, we read, To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. The Israelites could actually see God's glory on top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and what they saw was a fire that had power and energy to consume and devour everything in its path. In other words, this was not like a little candle flickering gently in a breeze. This was more like the thundering surface of the sun. This was a fire that was so brilliant you could barely look at it. This was a fire that moved and swirled and pulsed with life. This fire was the glory of God. Hebrews 12, written centuries later to followers of Jesus Christ, teaches us something very important about the glory of God revealed in the church. The author of Hebrews takes us back to this scene on Mount Sinai with the people of Israel at the base of the mountain trembling with fear because of the overwhelming glory, the overwhelming majesty of God's holiness revealed to them in, through the fire of God. And then the author of Hebrews tells us that our situation is different now. Instead of Mount Sinai and the terror that filled the Israelites because of God's overwhelmingly powerful presence, the author of Hebrews says this, But you have come to Mount Sinai, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Instead of terror, there is now joy. Instead of distance from God, there is now nearness and fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Yet, in spite of the various differences between the Israelites at Mount Sinai and us today, there's one thing that the author of the book of Hebrews says remains the same. And that is that our God is a consuming fire. We read, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What does this mean? That God's glory, the, the holiness and power and majesty of his presence appears as a consuming fire, which seems much more dangerous than comforting in the descriptions that we find in Scripture this is a very important question for us to ask in light of the fact of what we're learning about God who is a consuming fire and who dwells in the living temple made up of the lives of his people. 
If God dwells among us, if God manifests his presence among us within our community life, if this is the holy of holies, and if our God is a consuming fire, what does this mean for us as the church? Earlier in Hebrews chapter 12, we find an important clue. Immediately before the passage we just read about how our God is a consuming fire and how the Israelites are at the foot of Mount Sinai, we find a discussion about holiness. Holiness. There we read this. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So what exactly is holiness? In Scripture, God's holiness refers to God's moral perfection and his separateness and radical otherness from broken and sinful human life. The theologian R.C. Sproul says it this way, When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. In scripture we see that God then calls his people to be holy, which means that he calls us to live in a way that reflects his character. According to Hebrews 12, if we want to experience and see the fullness of God's presence manifest and working through our community life together, then we must be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We already found a brief mention of this fact in Ephesians 2 where we learned that that we as God's people are not simply called to be a temple, we're called to be a holy temple. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Holiness is what enables God's people to enter into God's holy presence, our God who is a consuming fire. Holiness is like a carbon composite shield that enables us to enter God's manifest presence without being completely destroyed. It's not that God's presence is in any way negative or, or, or destructive, uh, Rather, it's that lives that lack God's holiness exhibit a fatal flaw. This flaw of sin, this weakness that, that, that renders us incapable of remaining in God's presence without holiness. Without holiness, we're flying into the sun without a shield. And we're going to be completely destroyed. Holiness is so essential to our relationship with God. That we see in our passage for today that God calls us as an entire community to experience this holiness together. In 1 Peter 2, we find these descriptions of this community that God is forming in and through Jesus Christ in the church. 
we read that we together are a temple of the Spirit. Then we read that we are a holy priesthood together. And then we read that we're a holy nation as, as we gather as God's people. This, these are communal realities. And these verses describe something that we rarely talk about. Because of our individualistic society, we we sometimes hear about sanctification as personal sanctification, where you and I, only as isolated individuals, are being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and that's true. But these verses are talking about corporate sanctification, communal transformation, growth in holiness as the church. We're confronted by God's call for the church, the community of God's people together to experience sanctification, for us together as a community to become holy. In other words, we're called to allow God to transform us not only as individuals, but also as people who gather together, people who have flaws, people who aren't perfect, people who are still growing in our faith, but who have received the call to be holy together as God's people, gathered in God's holy presence through Jesus Christ. What is this like? What is it like for a community of believers to experience the holy presence of God among them. In one of his sermons, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of how a woman one Sunday morning was walking by their, their church, the Westminster Chapel in London. She's walking by on the street while the congregation was gathered in worship. And this woman had been involved in fortune-telling and other occult practices. And so she was familiar with spiritual power. But the only spiritual power she'd ever known before was demonic spiritual power. But because she was familiar with spiritual power, she felt the spiritual power coming from this place where God's people are gathering in worship. And so she enters, she's drawn in. And in her words, she's, she recognizes the reality of this power, but she also knows this spiritual power is unlike any spiritual power she had ever before experienced. In her words, this was clean spiritual power. This spiritual power, the presence of the holy God dwelling among his people, this is qualitatively different from any other spiritual power demonic power in this world. This is where the presence of the holy God dwells among the living temple built by the lives of his people. Soon after, this woman gave her life to Jesus Christ. When God dwells in our community life by his spirit, when he makes us to be a holy temple, for his presence. He reveals his holiness. He reveals his clean spiritual power among his people. There are communities of believers upon whom God's favor and blessing rest in an unusually powerful way. 
And as they gather as God, God's people together, they experience and exude God's holy presence in such a tangible way. I pray for us to, to be a community like that, marked and known for the holy presence of God among us. But for us to experience this, we must first hear and obey God's call to us as a community and God's call to us as individuals to be holy, to be God's holy temple in which he dwells, in which he reveals his holiness. Make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There's a specific event in the Old Testament that helps us understand the second half of this verse. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This is a moment when God decided to withdraw his holy presence from his people, Israel, because of their lack of holiness. God had just delivered Israel from Egypt. He had just given them guidelines for how to live and be his holy people, and almost immediately, Israel rejects God's holiness and says, no, we're going to worship an idol. We're not going to worship the living holy God. We're going to worship an idol, a golden calf. God then responds to their rejection of his own holy presence by choosing to withdraw his presence from their community. In Exodus 33.3, God tells them, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Moses then pleads with God and God finally relents and agrees to go with them, but we see here an important truth. I think that sometimes we misunderstand what happens when God withdraws his presence from a community, a community that has rejected his holiness? I, th I think that this misunderstanding can then cause us to have a false understanding of what God's holiness is even like. Let me just take a moment to explain. The prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament describes God in this way. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. I think that sometimes we misinterpret this and other passages by thinking that, that verses like this mean that God's holiness is fragile and that God shields his holiness from our sin in order to protect and preserve his holiness. But just the opposite is true. When God withdraws his presence from a community because of that community's sin, God is shielding that community from the consuming fire of God's holiness. God withdrawing his holy presence from a community that has rejected his holiness is a temporary act of mercy in which God is giving that community time and further opportunity to repent. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 3 where he explains why God delays the second coming of Jesus Christ to earth. There we read this. 
By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Here we see that there is a day coming in which the fire of God's holy judgment will consume all who lack the holiness required to survive in the presence of our holy God. They lack the holiness given by Jesus Christ and received as a free gift of grace through faith in him. This holiness that functions like a, a protective shield that enables a spacecraft to operate in the atmosphere of the sun. As we'll learn next week, this is not a holiness that you or I can manufacture ourselves. This is a holiness. This is the holiness of Jesus Christ that he gives to us. This is the holiness of Jesus Christ that he works within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's so important that we know today that there is nothing fragile about God's holiness. But the most fragile thing in all the world is a person or a human community infected by sin. In Psalm 1, we read that the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The wicked are like chaff. This is that inedible husk around a kernel of grain. And so you have to remove that husk. It's worthless, and it, it easily burns up. It, it's worth nothing. It's that kernel of grain that matters. Sin is, is like this chaff, this inedible husk that's worthless. John the Baptist prophesied that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. God's holiness is not fragile. When we choose to live lives full of sin, rather than lives filled with the holiness of God made available to us through Jesus Christ, we are the ones who are fragile, like chaff that's easily burned up, easily destroyed. God who is a consuming fire and people whose lives are filled with the chaff of sin cannot coexist because the fire of God's holiness will consume and, and destroy and burn up and purify all that's filled with the fragile, useless, destructive chaff of sin. And so God, and so when God withdraws his presence from a community, a community that has rejected his holiness, that's filled with the chaff of sin, this withdrawal is a temporary act of mercy 
giving that community time and opportunity to repent, to, to turn away from their sin, to turn to God. We must always remember, though, that this withdrawal of God's holy presence is always temporary. Because God will, at some point, confront each and every one of us with the fire of his unveiled glory, the fire of his holiness. Next week, we're going to turn our attention to how we as individuals and as a community may grow in holiness through the work of the Holy Spirit among us. This morning, though, I invite us to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts, to search our lives, to search our community in order to reveal any areas of sin, any areas within us or among us, any ways that we've rejected the holiness of our God. Let's allow the holiness of Jesus Christ to flow in us, to flow through us, to fill our lives, to fill our community as a church and to make our gatherings a place where our holy God will be delighted to manifest his presence among us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Our holy God, this morning we confess that, that we have no right or possibility of being in your holy presence apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin. We confess this morning that there is nothing righteous, there is nothing holy in and of ourselves as sinful people. But this morning we also rejoice because through Jesus Christ, we now stand forgiven and cleansed. We stand covered in the righteousness filled with the holiness of Jesus Christ. You declare us to be righteous in the sight of God and you are at work in our lives transforming us through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and we praise you for this fact. And I pray that today that you'd show us any chaff in any part of our lives any chaff in our community as a church, anything that cannot stand before the fire of your holy presence. And I pray, God, that you'd convict us out of love for us, that you'd enable us to turn to you in repentance and say, I'm so sorry, Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. Take away the chaff, burn up the chaff in my life and replace it with the holiness of Jesus Christ. And as we gather now around your table, I pray that your holy presence would be manifest among us, that you would work, that you would speak, that you would transform. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.